Welcome to the EO Podcast with Brett Kiesling, part of the EO Podcast Network. Hello, my friends. Thanks for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. Once again, I am proud and pleased to bring you yet another episode that we are recording live at the National Center for Employee Ownership's annual EO conference in Seattle, Washington. I am alive with another conference attendee. John Burgess is an equity and comp lawyer at Shoemaker in Tampa. Correct. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on. I am very excited to meet you and to have you on. I'll be honest, the early days of the podcast when I was a trustee, I used to have a lot of lawyers on and valuation advisors and other trustees, and now I'm hanging more with the culture folks and the communication and well, the advocates. Well, they're probably more interesting, so I'm, I'm going to try and do better than most lawyers would on this well, type of thing. Well, I'm sure you'll be great, and what you're talking about is very, very important. So, John, we're going to get to equity and comp issues. You're also, and uh, there's a little bit of time travel, so to speak, with podcasting, because we're going to talk about a presentation that you're doing tomorrow at the conference, which will actually be weeks in the past by the time anybody is listening to this. But we'll talk about that a little bit. And you're also a board member of the Florida State Center for Employee Ownership, which is really important. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. Excellent. Yep. So John, as you are aware, we like to start our podcast off with our guests if they have an EO aha moment, not the moment they first heard about employee ownership or thought maybe it was a good thing. But if there's a moment that was trans transformative, where you said, aha, this is something different and worthwhile. Have you had an EO aha moment? Yeah, it was probably my first NCEO conference, which I think was 2010. I know it was in Denver. And coming to the conference for the first time, you know, go downstairs, really didn't know anybody. But you start walking around the conference and you see all these people going around with their company logos on their shirts. And I'd never seen anything like that in any other conferences I had gone to. You know, obviously I'd been to a lot of legal and accounting conferences and all the stuff that normally applies to my practice areas and what I do for a living. But you never really kind of get that sense of pride. You get that sense of culture. And that really stuck out to me instantly when I worked, walked into my first NCO conference. So I've been to everyone since then, both live and virtual. And it always gives me the same sort of energy. You know, you walk out of here and there's just a ton of juice flowing through you. It's like, okay, what am I going to do with this? And it just really is a great pickup and it helps me get energized and ready to tackle the rest of the rest of the year and all this great stuff we got coming ahead. I love that. And I love the fact that you really are feeding off the vibe of the employee owners and uh, that's what NCO does great and the other folks conferences are great as well you know I don't pick sides promote them all but uh, that vibe and for for it to resonate with you that uh, all of the other attendees you know is what made an impression on you says a lot about that and there were only like 700 people back at this one now you know that now we're at like I think Pittsburgh was about 2,000 this one's about 13 maybe 1,500 so yeah just the amount of growth in this conference is really amazing and the other thing that's been a little bit different and again for the listeners you know who will hear this we're we're knee deep in the middle of it we're on the first full day of the conference there was a pre-conference yesterday but they've got number i'd heard 1500 might be a little bit less but there's also hundreds more in the virtual component right. which didn't exist 10 years ago exactly. so it's fascinating to see didn't exist three uh, years ago that's exactly right and, and what came about the need for covid you know as a as a response to covid uh, i suspect is going to be just an ongoing part of our our arsenal because it's a great way particularly for 
for the employee owners. You as a practitioner, you need to get out here and you need to meet people. But if a company has, you know, 100 employee owners, send 10 of them virtually. So that's a, a very cool development. So let's talk a little bit about comp and equity issues and what you think is important when someone is reaching out to you why are they doing that or, or what is the expertise that you bring? Well, it's any number of things. I mean, I when I started off doing ERISA stuff full time, this was back in 2006, I just moved to DC and my background is, number one, I was a CPA, worked at a little firm called Arthur Anderson back in the day. Got out of there before everything imploded. I was in my, I think, third year of law school when that happened. So wow. my grand scheme to go back to Anderson and the tax group obviously didn't happen. So I came out and was sort of a general tax lawyer and started looking for jobs and, and in 2006 put my resume out in D.C. and there were just like five or six ERISA jobs that came right up. And so I thought, okay, this may be something I need to get into. So started doing a lot of ERISA stuff, a lot of 401k, a little bit less in the health plan area, but a lot of executive compensation as well. And so just did that, but also started to learn a little bit more about ESOPs and started to get into the employee-owned arena. And like I said, my NCEO con was 2010 and really wanted to take that and become more ingrained in it. I mean, like I said, I just love the culture. I love the vibe. I love the energy of it. And so when people are contacting me, you know, usually, you know, number one, obviously we do a lot of work with ESOP formations and ESOP maintenance. Occasionally we'll help with the termination of an ESOP. Sometimes ESOP companies, of course, get bought. And so I'm actually in the middle of one right now where we have a client that is buying an ESOP company and they're a very acquisitive company. But I, I tell them, you know, this one is going to be different. This is not just negotiating with four or five different individual owners. This is not going to be your standard transaction. Doesn't mean it's necessarily better or worse. It's just going to be different. And so that's that's a big part of my employee ownership. But then just, you know, general things with 401k plans. I mean, I'm, I'm very active in that community as well. So what we try to do is help people in 401k plans really get their fiduciary practices down to a good level. You know, one thing that I've noticed since I moved to Florida is that the companies there, you know, they they have the plans, they send them over to the Merrill Lynch's or the Fidelis of the world, and they do a really good job at what they do, but they don't help them with the fiduciary things and kind of making sure that they're staying out ahead of things. And so I try to coach them up and help them get better. And even with new plans, I've helped a few new plans come into existence, just get those good habits in right away. And they do that, it's going to make things better as their companies grow and, and, and do that. And then the, the other big thing, obviously, is just sort of normal equity compensation, stock options, RSUs, uh, lots of profits, interest in LLCs as well. You know, we have a lot of business owners who come to us and they kind of think, all right, I've got this five, maybe seven year horizon when I can envision myself selling this business. What do I need to do in order to motivate my employees and kind of our interests get aligned? And so that's what I'm going to be talking about mainly tomorrow during my presentation is what are those alternatives? How do you make them work? How do you put it in place? How do you decide which one you're going to go with? And so which compensation plan you might go with right. and, and who is included in presumably are these upper management or these some of the higher wage earners that you're, you're creating plans for or do they extend throughout the organization? For the most, I mean, for the most part, it it's, tends to be on the higher paid side, but you never know. I mean, there are companies that do want to bring it down to, you know, maybe not everybody in the company, but a big, you know, bigger chunk than maybe what you'd be used to. And so that's really good in educating them. And then also when you do get to talk to them about this, you get to say, hey, there's this ESOP thing out there that I know you're not ready to do a transition yet. You're not ready to, to step out, but 
it's just something to think about. And that's, you know, we'll talk about the Florida Center a little bit later, but that's one of the things that the Florida Center is there for, is to get the word out and make sure that people understand that this is an option. John, I think that's really important. And one of the things that I think is cool as I've been, you know, as an ESOP trustee for seven years, and I've been hosting the podcast for five now, but three uh, since I It's been about three years since I sold my interest in the trustee firm. There are a lot of times where I think we have ESOP professionals whose firms, whether it's the accounting firms, whether it's the law firms or whatnot, are multi-practice areas, but they don't necessarily do the crossover. So I love the fact that you might be doing a comp and equity plans with some clients that aren't employee-owned, but you're able to drop the hints, the breadcrumbs, if you will, to put employee ownership on their radar for down the road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, you know, that's what we need to be doing out there. I mean, it's a it's a big thing and it's just, you know, our firm, especially like the past year and a half, the M&A market for us has just been crazy. It has just not stopped. Usually you'll have a big kind of build up near the end of the year and then it'll, you know, calm down a little bit the first of the year, but that hasn't been happening. But, you know, we're helping with all these transactions and it makes you think, you know, how many of these people before they came to us even knew what an ESOP was or knew that that was something that they could have done? And So that's part of our education, our outreach with the Florida Center is to help people know that it's out there because, you know, they they either they may not know it or they may have heard some things that are half true or not true or just completely taken out of context. So the more we can educate people and let them know that's that's an option, the better off we're going to be and the more employee-owned companies we're going to create. So when you are involved initially, and I'm thinking back to, you know, when I was a trustee, we would be negotiating the transaction. And for those who are considering a transaction who are listening to this podcast, the trustee is essentially the buyer Mm -hmm. uh, in that. But are you designing the transaction or you design the comp and equity components of the transaction? Probably more along the lines of the comp and equity components. I mean, you know, what I do do, once somebody decides that they want to do an ESOP, I don't necessarily design the transaction. Obviously, you know, the ESOP, a trustee, and the sellers negotiate, and of course they all have people in there who's helping them determine what's the fair market value, you know, am I going to do any sort of, you know, scrows or earnouts or indemnification, all that stuff gets negotiated. So I put that stuff all on paper. Right. But what I do like to do when I'm walking through a new ESOP company is say, you know, all right, how do you want to have vesting work? How do you want to have eligibility work? You know, how, you know, how do you want to do allocations? I've got a couple of clients who do allocations basically on a combined compensation and years of service ratio, just because you know they, they want to reward years of service as well as compensation. Now that makes the testing a little bit more complicated, but it's doable. I've seen it in a few cases, and so you help them make those decisions. And and you know just to give an example, why would you do this? Well, one ESOP transaction I did last year, the company basically has a bunch of people in Florida and a bunch of people around New York City. Well, if you know anything about cost of living, the cost of living up in New York is way higher than it is in Florida. So they wanted to have people who were on the same level getting you know, roughly the same sort of benefit. And we had toyed around with a few things like doing an adjustment factor for cost of living, and it just got to be too complicated. So what they decided to settle on was we're not going to do it 100% comp-based because that's going to be you know, really unfair to the people in Florida, but at least we'll have a, a service component in there so that if you stay with the company longer, you're going to get a little bit more of an allocation of shares. And so that 
you know, there's no sort of bias between one of the locations there. So there are a lot of creative ways to do that. Of course, you know, you've got to make sure the testing works at the end of the day. But those types and of decisions. The, the testing, just for the, the folks who aren't up there, there's testing in terms of payroll and the participant to make sure that it's a qualified plan. Right, exactly. Right. But if yeah, you fail you can't, the testing, yeah, you can't uh, benefit the high paid people too high. What I love about this, John, is, again, having someone who's not just a comp expert and an equity expert, but knowing the ESOP field, because, for example, you know, again, when I had my trustee hat on, we would, quote unquote, have to approve executive salaries. It was rare that we had to take any action, but fiduciarily, executives could be really well compensated, but not unreasonably well compensated. So I think the value of having somebody with your expertise in ESOPs is that you've got that that means testing, you know, is, is in your DNA as well. Yeah. You know? and, and the other thing too, is that I think, I mean, every ESOP transaction that I can remember doing, we've had SARS as a component onto it, along with the, you know, the normal ESOP transaction. So you get you know, you get somebody who, you know, you want to have executive compensation, you want to reward them fairly. And again, that's what our session is going to be about tomorrow. But having that expertise to say, okay, not only can I put the CSOP in place for you, but we can also put the SARS plan in place. And it's really good because, you know, the SARS, obviously, if the company doesn't get more valuable, there's no value to the SARS. So having that perspective and being able to walk them through that, I think is really valuable. And, you know, something I try to add to every transaction that we do. I like that. And the, again, for the listeners, stock appreciation mm-hmm. rights. And you're the one who just really hit home that without appreciation, exactly. <laughs> you know, the SARS have no value. And I liked that as a trustee, you know, for me, I was always much more comfortable as a trustee with performance based metrics that would lead to raised and increased compensation as opposed to just stay on the job long enough. And so so in terms of how you're designing it, I just like that it can be done mindfully with the fiduciary requirements. And it's also good for the company. But the flip side of it is that, you know, you could hear my old trustee coming through of, well, it can't be to this or to that. But the reality is it's such an important component to, to maintain key talent, right? Yeah. That's- I mean, usually, you know, when you're, when you're going through this with a trustee, usually, the negotiation point is how much of the company are you going to be allowed to give away in SARS? You know, is it mm-hmm. going to be 5%? Is it going to be 10%? Is it going to be 15 And you just kind of figure out where that comfort level is, and that's where you go. So it's finding the right balance, though, of, of right. what is appropriate. But again, it's it's really important, you know, me as a trustee, I didn't want to chase away the management team by, no, you know, no. if, they, if they weren't competitively compensated, that doesn't help the ESOP either. Exactly. I mean, that hurts the company and as a result, that hurts the ESOP. So one of the things that I'm excited about, you're presenting with Curtis Share. Yeah. Curtis Share of, and just tell us about him. So Curtis is the general counsel of DCS Corporation. They've been a client of ours for or mine. He's actually switched along with me, followed me down to Florida since probably about 2011, 2012, I think it is. And they're majority ESOP owned in the defense contracting space. And so Curtis and I have actually presented over the past few years. But, you know, they are a really great example of how an ESOP company can do culture right. The past couple of years, we've presented on cultural topics and we go through all the things that they've developed. Now, this ESOP has been around for like 30 years. So they've had a lot of time to figure this out and and they didn't get to everything overnight. If you want a model to sort of look at and say, okay, this is what we need to be doing from a cultural 
cultural standpoint, I mean, this company does pretty much everything. And I mean, they, they talk about it on their social media. They, you know, they, they do it internally. They have a bunch of things that are incentives internally to help with the, uh, with, with the implementation of the culture of the ESOP. And one thing that I actually learned a few years ago about them is that they have on their board, the official company board, not just the ESOP committee, but the board of directors, essentially an ESOP participant who gets nominated by, you know, their managers and they, you know, they stay on there for three years just like any other board member, but they are a full-fledged member of the board of directors. And so that's how you, you know, get that leadership from within the ranks to, to help, you know, promote and make sure that the employees and the participants' interests are, are taken care of because ultimately, you know, those are the people who own the company. That is such a great thing for you to say, and I'm glad to hear that they do that because, yeah, one of the things that we focus on in employee ownership is the interplay between the board and the employee owners. And, you know, for example, I always encouraged board members to get out among the rank and file, you know, right. as you're having these various annual meetings or quarterly board meetings or what have you, to try and spend some time meeting the owners and having an employee owner serve in the board capacity is is uh, certainly a great way to do that. Yeah, totally. I mean, they it, it really works for them. I don't think they've, I'm trying to remember exactly when they put that program in place. It's not been too, too long, but the results they've had, they said, have just been fantastic. Excellent. So I've got one more question on the comp stuff, and then we want to talk about the Florida Center. But at what point would someone be reaching out to you? If they're considering an ESOP, do they reach out to you? Are there other professionals? Like if I were still a trustee and there were comp issues, it's not my job to advise the sellers. They're mm -hmm. on the other side. But at what point should folks reach out and retain you or ask questions about your services? Yeah, I mean, anytime you're interested in doing any one of those programs, be it an ESOP, be it an equity comp arrangement, then I can do that. You know, I have, a, I have a policy that I stick to, which is if you're looking into ESOP and you really need to learn more about it, I'll spend an hour in a Zoom meeting, an in-person meeting, on the phone with you, whatever you want to do, and just talk through it and give you the basics. I've got about 20 to 25 copies of the, that NCEO book, the introduction to ESOPs. I'll ship that to you for free. I, you know, I've got those in stocks. So I want to be able to give them to people just so that I can give you a high enough level view that I'm not going to scare you not going to confuse you too much, but just give you the basics, answer your questions, and you take it and you do with you what you want with it from there. But it's like I said, it's all about education. It's all about making sure that people understand, you know, not just that they're there, but they understand how they really work and what's involved in getting one of them done. And I love that, John. And if you're an employee-owned company or considering becoming an ESOP, it's so important to have somebody with your skill set, not just on the comp and equity, and I know that I'd said this earlier, but on the fiduciary aspects of an ESOP itself. You don't want, if you're a potential client, you don't want to hire a comp lawyer who doesn't understand this stuff, or you may present to the trustee a comp package that is just a non-starter. Exactly. So your ESOP experience is just critical to you being able to do this job in this space. Right. And, you know, I, I also know where my limitations are. So like I don't do feasibility studies. I don't, you know, help line up bank financing, but I know people who can do that. And I'll get you in the hands of the right people who will help you get everything set up and structured and make you, you know, go through those numbers and say, okay, here's how it works. Here's what the, here's what we think it is. Here's sort of a rough valuation that we think you can get. 
and you take that information and then if you're ready to go with it then we come back into the picture and start writing up the documents and putting everything together. John, I love that. Let's switch gears if we may. You are on the board of the Florida State Center for Employee Ownership and first of all the state centers are just it is so cool to see them popping up all over the country but it's also they are doing important work and they're driven the professional advisors and the employee-owned companies who are supporting the state centers. So first of all, thank you for your participation in that. It's so important and that benefits all of us. But tell us a little bit about the Florida Center. It's relatively new and, and just tell us a little bit about your experiences there. Yeah, it's relatively new. So I started trying to track this down back in 2018, 2019. This was actually before EOX. EOX is the Employee Ownership Expansion Network, which is now an organization that it's completely separate from the NCEO, but they you know, essentially help these state centers get up and off the ground and teach them how to do things. And I mean, they use, you know, you're from Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is really the model that everybody is looking at because it's had just a tremendous amount of success in about four or five years that it's been around. And Pennsylvania's done great. And just for our listeners, or do a little housekeeping, John, Steve Storkin, who's the executive director of VOX, has been on the podcast, I think, a couple of times mm-hmm. and has actually talked about how the centers come about and the importance of it and has given us a little bit behind the scenes look. But I just want to share for anybody who's curious about that if you go to our website www.esoppodcast.com and search on our website for eox you can get the backstories there so 2018 predating eox you really only had and, and by the way vermont's been around for a while and they're different from what we're talking mm-hmm. about and the ohio state center is also different they've been around for a while but nco started a prototype and development so to speak which became the pennsylvania center for employee ownership i coincidentally happen to be a founding member as, as captain trustees when that came about and you're absolutely right EOX has kind of used Pennsylvania's experience as the blueprint and EOX came into being at the same time that you were you were looking to attract a state center in Florida yeah exactly so I you know met Steve once EOX was formed and we got a few other people so Will Stewart up at PCE in Orlando and Jay Van Hyde who's another attorney up in Orlando where we were the initial board and the great story about it maybe it's great maybe it's not so great but the entity was officially formed on March 17th, 2020, which I always like to say is the St. Patrick's Day when all the bars were getting shut down because of COVID. So that definitely made it a challenge for us to really get up and and going, but we've got some really great ideas for programming going forward. You know, for example, we're putting together a program next month. This is going to be May 18th in Tampa, where we're going to have a program geared specifically towards bankers and investment professionals. And the message we're getting out to those guys is, you know, you need to understand how these things work because ultimately you've got clients and if they get sold to a third party or if they, even if they like do an ESOP and you're not the one doing the ESOP loan, chances are you're gonna lose them as a client. And so this is good for you guys number one just to know it and have that option available but number two it's a great business retention tool so we're rolling that out the first one we're going to do is in tampa next month looking to do something in orlando probably a few months after that over the summer so similar sort of thing looking to hit some programs in jacksonville as well so we've got a few good esop champions up there who we're working with but yeah i mean we're we're really starting to refine and understand what our what our programming is and what our audience needs to be because ultimately you know 
we can talk to people all we want. We can talk to business owners all we want, but there are tons of other people who are also talking to business owners. And so we're using them, them to help spread the message. And I guess the other thing that we are thinking about from a Florida Center stand is in March doing some sort of, I don't know if you would call it a symposium or some sort of seminar or whatever you want to call it, but basically the idea is, and this is where the, the network of state centers comes in, but March, Florida, spring training, People who are owners of ESOP companies, they you know, or not ESOP companies, but companies that may be thinking about it, you know, they want to learn more, but they don't necessarily want to go to a program that's up where they live because maybe somebody sees them going in and then start rumors start to spread. So what we do is we say, okay, if you guys come down to Florida, we'll put this program on for you. We'll give you, you know, not like a ton of education. You know, we'll give you maybe four or five hours. We're kind of working out the details at this point, but come down here. We'll teach you enough to start to think about it a little bit more see if you're interested in it throw in a spring training game you know throw in you know maybe a trip to the beach or something who, you know who knows what we're going to do but the point is get people from other parts of the country to come down in addition to the outreach that we're doing to people in florida you know using this network of state centers is going to be a really great tool because they're going to be the ones who can help us recruit people to this event so that this event by the way this was not my idea this was roy messing who helps run the state center operations for a number of states i think you know roy and and roy was the longtime head of the ohio state center Mm -hmm. as part of the kin state university and now has transitioned to eox and uh, yeah i understand he's serving as executive director at a number of the state centers well, that's a great idea. First of all, it's a great selling point of come down to Florida and there's plenty of stuff to see, but it's that interaction among the different uh, states. So it's, uh, for example, it's not unusual for the Pennsylvania Bar Association to have bar events down in Florida. Sure. You know, sure. so it's that same kind of a context, but Florida would be the great place to do it. And it's exciting to see the coordination nationwide. Yeah, we had a meeting yesterday. That was Monday. And this is with... a, during the conference for those who are listening. So right, it's actually right. a month or two ago as yeah. they're hearing this, but here at the conference it was a meeting right so it was steve storkin roy and some people from other state centers i know we had connecticut massachusetts north carolina georgia there's some people from ohio roy was representing michigan but we all just got in a room together because we you know we talk to each other of course all the time but just got in a room and started bouncing ideas off of each other and started to think strategically you know what can we collaborate on and what can we learn from each other so you know for example one of the things we talked about was state legislation there was california represented too because California I know has a bill out there and I I spent about 15 minutes this morning talking to Corey Rosen just about legislation and how to get things into your state legislatures get them passed and you know to the extent that we can start this trend nationwide some states Colorado has a great program I think a few other states have some things in place at this point as well and some other states have some legislation going so you know we know what can be done and we just got to take those lessons and learn how to reach those people and make sure that we can introduce that type of legislation and get people behind it and sell, you know, tell the story. I mean, I always say that we've got the greatest asset in terms of employee ownership in our state. We got Publix there. You know, there are an inordinate amount of millionaires running around Lakeland, Florida. Why? Because they worked at Publix for, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, and they've had that stock just building and building and building and building. And you know, so it's a really great story. That company, just like the entire state, has just grown like crazy. When I bought our house back in 2017, when we moved down to Florida, there was basically one Publix within like five minutes of it. Now there are three. So wow. that's just one example of, of what it can do. And of course, you're from Pennsylvania. You're familiar with Wawa. We've got a ton of Wawa's down there as well. We've got one like a mile from my house with a Publix right across the street from it. So 
we've got those stories, and, and the thing that we, we were telling each other was it's really easy to talk about these things for us in sort of an abstract basis about, you know, how great it is. But you start throwing the names of companies out there who are employee-owned, and you say, hey, you know, this company is doing it. They're like, oh, that really sort of turns the light on in their head, and they say, oh, okay, now I, I, that makes them, I guess, get it a little bit more. So that's one strategy that we've really been talking about is don't just tell them about sort of how it works and all the theoretical stuff. Use real examples. I love that. And you're certainly talking about, you know, Publix is the largest employee-owned company in the United States. And Wawa, for those who may not be familiar geographically, but is a state-of-the-art convenience store chain and gas stations and whatnot that that started in Pennsylvania. And I think, I know they're more than 35% employee-owned because they're members of certified EO, so they have to reach that benchmark. Yeah, I think the last I heard was about 40. Yeah, you are probably uh, accurate. So let me, by way of wrapping up this segment, John, why employee ownership? You could do comp, you could do equity. Just getting back to you personally, why is it important if it is for you to be in the employee ownership space? Well, I really believe in it. You know, you've seen the results. I mean, you look at the companies like Publix, you look at Wawa, you look at all the other examples that are out there. I mean, how many thousands are there? I could, you know, go on for days talking about that, but it works for everybody. You know, it's the ultimate win-win-win situation. I mean, obviously it's great for employees. You know, they're they're getting as great retirement benefit that they technically don't have to pay for. They're not going out of pocket for it. It's really good for owners as well because they, you know, they can get a good value for their business and they keep it sort of within their family. I mean, they, they look at their employees as their family and they want to make sure that they're taken care of. They want to make sure that their business carries on and sort of their legacy carries on. Because for most, most of these business owners, you know, this business is their baby. Right. I mean, they started it or maybe their parents started it and they helped grow it. They helped make it into what it is today. They've already got a great culture. And, you know, when I'm talking to somebody about an ESOP, a, a business owner who's a potential ESOP candidate, you can pretty much tell within the first five minutes whether or not they're going to be a good candidate because of the way that they talk about their people and their employees and their business and they talk about their history and it's just really great to be involved in these things and it's really great when the owner announces to all the members of the company that the company has been sold to the employees you see those reactions you see the way that people react to it you know at first it's kind of like wait what happened and they it takes a little bit of time to process it but when they understand that okay you know this baby is ours now and it's our job to take care of it and it's our job to nurture it and make it grow and make it better i mean that's a really special moment and you know one company i just helped do a uh, transaction for called symbian service company they're based in englewood florida just a little bit south of sarasota but the owner put her message to the company out and she recorded it she's talking about you know they they had a really great year that year this was the end of 2021 talking about all the great things that were happening and then oh by the way I'm selling the company and I'm selling it to all of you and so that's all up on the company's website they're really proud of it and you know if you are an employee-owned business you know advertise it man I mean people love to hear it Great Lakes Brewing Company which is, is I'm a Cleveland native I don't think I mentioned that at this point but I'm a Cleveland guy you know and New Belgium used to do this as well they put on their cans or they put on their bottles or boxes employee-owned so Make sure people know about it because it's a great story. It helps spread the word. It, it opens up people to questions and say, hey, what does that mean? And 
you know, you guys who are ESOP companies can also help spread the word too, and you do a great job of doing it, but the more we can, we can do that, the better. John, I love that, and you actually stumbled upon the topic of my presentation here at the NCO conference. Jesse Tyler and I presented the past tense on boosting the EO message through social media and podcasting, but the primary point of our presentation has been that, you know, for so many companies, employee ownership is the defining aspect of the company, and yet we don't put it on our labels. We don't use it in recruiting. We don't use it in so many different ways to put our best foot forward. So that is some excellent points. John, I want to thank you for the time with me here on the podcast. I want to thank you for everything that you're doing as an equity and comp lawyer with Shoemaker. We're fortunate to have talented professionals in the ESOP space, and you are certainly one of them. And a particular thank you on behalf of everyone for your work with the Florida State Center. That's where you're bringing this and porting it out so much more than just your own client base, and that is very much appreciated and very important. Yeah, I I really love doing this stuff, and I've said this a million times. This is a great community. It's really energizing, and so, you know, as much as we put into it, we get that much out of it. So it's, it's a great way to make a living. With that, we're going to wrap up today's episode of the ESOP podcast. Next Tuesday, July 5th, 2022, we're going to bring you a conversation with John Burgess and Curtis Scher of DCS Corporation, who are going to discuss the panel they led at the NCO conference. Sort of a part two to this episode. I hope you'll check it out. Thank you so much for listening. This is Brett Kiesling. Be well. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at EO Podcast Network and on Twitter at ESOP Podcast. This podcast has been produced by Brett Kiesling for the EO Podcast Network. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Branding and marketing by Bitsy Plus Design. And I'm Bitsy McCann.